Chestnut is my favorite wood. It always has been. Growing up, we had it in my house in New Jersey. And when it was time to scrape and sand the windows before painting the trim, my dad would always tell us, this house is made with chestnut. I could hear the pride in his voice. And when I made my first piece of real furniture, I knew I wanted to make it out of reclaimed chestnut. So I bought some old boards from a barn and I made this little coffee table. The wood, it actually cost me a fortune, but it was worth it. Wood from the chestnut tree is beautiful. It's rare and it's almost all gone. It turns out I'm not the only fan and for good reason. It was called the perfect tree. The American chestnut grew fast and straight. At over 100 feet tall and up to 10 feet wide, it towered over the eastern forests. It was plentiful, too. Legend has it that a squirrel could travel on the canopy of the chestnuts from Georgia to Maine without ever touching the ground. In the spring, oceans of white blossoms decorated the mountains. In the fall, delicious nuts encased in spiky shells blanketed the ground. The chestnut tree was fundamental because it fed people and livestock. And it built schoolhouses, cradles, and coffins. It defined a region and a people. And then it vanished. Over the short span of 40 years, just one generation, four billion chestnut trees were wiped out. The perfect tree became functionally extinct. But that might be changing. And an effort to bring back this American icon just might hold out hope for other disappearing trees. From this old house, this is Clear Story, your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. It's hard to overstate just how plentiful the American chestnut tree was. At the turn of the century, it accounted for a quarter of all the trees in eastern forests. From Mississippi to Ohio, Maine to Florida, they dotted hillsides, fields, and orchards. It was once the most felled tree in the United States, helping to build the country as it was rapidly industrializing. And then one day, something strange started to happen. The blight was first noticed in 1904 at the Bronx Zoo, where there were chestnut trees on the grounds. And the gardener there noticed that some of the trees were doing poorly, the leaves were withering and turning brown, and he saw places where the bark was drying out and there was this kind of orange speckly dust on the branches. Susan Frankel is the author of American Chestnut, The Life, Death, and Rebirth of a Perfect Tree. And he tried treating them. He thought it was some sort of fungal infection, tried treating it to no avail, and eventually contacted a colleague across the street at the um, New York Botanical Garden who was an expert in fungus. His name was William Morell. William Morell took samples of the mysterious orange dust and determined it was a parasitic fungus, one that he had never seen before. Now, it took a while, but eventually people realized that the fungus had been imported on ornamental Japanese and Chinese chestnut trees. Those were resistant to the blight, but they had unwittingly carried it here. And there were lots of ground zeros. It wasn't just in New York. It was in Washington. It was in Philadelphia. It was all along sort of the middle Atlantic seaboard. 
the fungus was spreading fast. William Morell sounded the alarm. None of the fungicides stopped the blight, and landowners and farmers were desperate. He himself was sort of besieged with letters from tree owners, you know, tell me what I can do. It was viewed as this patriotic duty to try to save the chestnut trees. The most quixotic, heroic, sad venture was in Pennsylvania, where there were a lot of wild chestnut trees in the forest, as well as a very valuable chestnut orchard industry. And Pennsylvania in 1911 appropriated the equivalent of several million dollars to try to stop the blight. And they came up with this, what is it in hindsight, a very naive plan where they were going to create a fire break down the middle of the state. It was 1911. The blight was well entrenched in eastern Pennsylvania. So the plan was to try to save the trees in the western part of the state. And so they literally recruited hundreds of um, scouts, like young men, and sent them through millions of acres, six million acres, to like look step by step for signs of the blight. They're literally looking up in these huge forest trees, trying to see if, you know, way up, 50 feet up in the air, there might be like little orange speckles on a branch, or there might be signs of dying leaves. And the instructions were every time they saw signs of blight, they would completely destroy it, burn it to bits. They never thought about the fact that they were probably spreading the blight as they tramped through the forest on their shoes or on their axes. How does it spread? Why couldn't we stop it? Because it's airborne. It's a fungus and it produces spores that are airborne or picked up by birds. And a single spore can sort of act like a match in a dry forest and just sort of set off a wildfire of infection. How quickly did the chestnut come and go? And can we follow its path? You can. I mean, by the 30s, it was in Pennsylvania and Southern Virginia. By the 40s, it was into Ohio and Kentucky. And by the 50s, it had reached the full length of the range from Georgia to Maine. So, you know, basically in the space of a single generation, people estimate three to four billion trees were destroyed. Staggering. Yeah. And that's with people trying to stop it, fire breaks and everything else. Well, here's the other part of that story, though. The U.S. Forest Service was a relatively new agency at the time. They had seen imported pathogens before, but nothing quite like this. Officials didn't know what to do. And so their advice was cut them down. We can't stop it. We can't save the trees. So cut them down and extract what commercial value you can get out of them as quickly as possible. That contributed to the rapid destruction of the chestnut forests. One of the reasons that's significant and one of the reasons that's a problem is that when any pathogen hits, some members of the population are more vulnerable, some are less. You know, not everyone died of smallpox. Not everyone is getting COVID. Some people are more resistant to COVID than others. They have some kind of genetic quality that allows them to fight it. And that is probably true with the chestnuts as well. But we never got a chance to see that because, you know, between the blight itself and then this kind of very ruthless, let's just get what we can out of these forests as fast as we can, we never got to see whether there were some that were hardier, better able to muster defenses against it. Do you think we potentially exacerbated the problem? I don't think we exacerbated it, but I think we hastened the demise of the chestnut forests. 
It might seem like a fool's errand to us now, these heroic efforts to try and stop a deadly blight. But there was so much at stake. The American chestnut, well, it wasn't just a tree. It was a way of life. It was the backbone of an economy, and it was critical to the modernization of America. You could use it to make furniture. You could use it to frame houses. Because the wood was tannic, it was rot resistant. You could use it for utility poles, again, a time when the country is electrifying. It was literally used cradle to grave, literally cradles to coffins. So it was that versatility that made it so valued. And then the actual harvest itself from the nuts. I think they call it the mast. The masts. We don't think of it these days as being a a big source of calories or for food. But back then, given the times and also, again, how common it was, it, it really provided a lot of calories for humans and animals. It did. I mean, again, one of the things about the chestnut is it regularly produced. It produced every fall, and you could have a tree could produce as many as 6,000 nuts. So that was valued uh, at a lot of different levels. I mean, in the Southern Appalachians, it was a vital source of nutrition, both for the kind of subsistence farmers who lived in the mountains and for their livestock. So farmers would notch their hogs' ears and set them loose in the forest and let them forage on chestnuts. They would also go out and harvest from the forest themselves, both to fill their own bellies, but more importantly, to be able to take them down to the country store and sell them to be able to buy things that they couldn't make for themselves from, you know, shoes, sugar, things like that. In the early 20th century, it was a really important commodity crop for farmers in the southern Appalachian who were basically subsistence farmers. So it is completely ingrained in sort of our culture, um, at least within the Eastern forests and the Appalachian culture. They're using it, they're seeing it, they are working it day in and day out. Yeah, it was really an iconic tree for that region. There were nicer woods available, like walnut and black cherry. Planks of American chestnut weren't particularly notable. They were light brown with distinct growth rings. The bark developed raised ridges like veins, running the length of the tree. And it fed a booming tanning industry. But the real beauty of the American chestnut was that it was the people's tree. It could do it all. It surrounded you at every turn. Your house might have been built out of chestnut. You might have chestnut paneling on the walls of your house. The the roof might be made of chestnut shingles. You might be sitting in a chair that was carved out of chestnut, or you might have a table that was made out of chestnut. You would walk through woods filled with chestnuts. Your farm might be bordered by a split rail fence made of chestnut. You might go to church on Sunday and have it be made out of chestnut. If it was fall, your mom would wake you in the morning and you'd head out to the little grove of chestnut trees that you knew about in the forest near you and you'd have your tin buckets in your hand and you would go out and collect chestnuts that morning and you would take them home and you would stick them up in the attic to dry a little bit and then you'd fill a burlap sack with them and you would take them to the country store down the road where they would be bartered or you'd get scrip so you could buy things that you needed. And so you had this real sense of affinity and affiliation that was kind of a unique connection that people don't often have toward a tree, which is why when the blight hit and the trees began dying, it was so devastating for people there. 
And my dad, the only time I ever saw a tear in that old man's eyes was when he would start telling the story of the loss of the chestnut. The death of a way of life after the break. I mean, it really was a huge tree. It was called the Redwood of the East, mainly because it it got so big and grew so straight. Rex Mann grew up in Appalachia in western North Carolina, listening to his father's stories about the American chestnut tree, stories that were often about our country's history. Abe Lincoln grew up here in Kentucky, and he was a rail splitter. And uh, I'm absolutely sure that a lot of the trees that he split rails out of were American chestnut. In 1862, Congress passed the Pacific Railway Act, laying the groundwork for the first transcontinental railroad. By 1900, rail lines crisscrossed the country, connecting people and places like never before. And because the wood from chestnut trees was rot-resistant and straight, it was perfect for railroad ties. Life in Appalachia in the early 1900s was hard. People lived off the land as subsistence farmers and lumberjacks. They ran sawmills, churning out hundreds of millions of chestnut board feet every year. Livestock fattened up on the nuts from the trees, and families, like Rex's, relied on it for their livelihood. My dad, he was he was quite a guy. He he was uh, uneducated by our standards today. I think he had six years education, and he got that in a logging camp. Rex's father was born in 1909, just a few years after the blight was first discovered in New York. He was a old mountain man. He was a huge guy, and uh, spent all of his life working on farming or cutting trees, and making moonshine whiskey. Families like Rex's cherished their chestnut trees. Scrapbooks held photos of parents and children standing in front of their favorite chestnut. The tree was a beloved member of the family. But as the blight made its way up and down the eastern seaboard, it coincided with another devastating moment in our history, the Great Depression. Fifteen million people were left unemployed. Many farmers who had struggled through the falling food prices and drought in the 1920s couldn't survive as the trees died. Many of these people, they couldn't even afford to buy the feed for their livestock. Many of them left and went to the big cities to try to find work. So it had a devastating effect on that subsistence way of living. Rex remembers sitting around a fire, listening to his father's stories about the chestnut tree and the devastation that followed its demise. Rex took those stories to heart. He spent 42 years working for the U.S. Forest Service. And 20 years ago, he co-founded the Kentucky chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation. He's part of a movement to bring back this functionally extinct tree. Now, what does it mean that the chestnut is functionally extinct? 
Well, there are some chestnut trees that survive the blight, but there aren't enough of them to create a viable crop. It's a little complicated, but here's the main problem. The blight moved from tree to tree, causing a wound or a canker visible by the orange dust that wrapped around the tree. The fungus prevented water and nutrients from passing through the infected site, and eventually most of the trees would die. But it turns out the fungus didn't attack all of the tree. Amazingly, it did not kill the roots of the tree. And chestnut tree is a prolific sprouter. In other words, when it, it killed it to the ground level, but the tree would put up new growth very quickly after it died. And some of these old chestnut trees have been sprouting for 75 years. So the remaining trees keep sprouting. But before they can grow big enough to flower and reproduce, the saplings become infected with the fungus and die. And after re-sprouting, getting reinfected, and dying off time and time again, the tree loses energy and dies. But why not let a tree die out and move on? The chestnut was just the first, I call it fallen soldier. You know, it was a major tree, but it was eliminated. That began an onslaught of pandemics, if you will, by humans. And we have unleashed on our forest, particularly the eastern forest, a never-ending flood of diseases and insects brought in from other countries that have trees similar to ours. But our trees have no resistance and they're dying like flies. We're losing hemlock trees, eastern hemlocks by the millions, all the way from New England to the, almost the Gulf Coast and the Mississippi River. Ash trees that we make baseball bats out of are dying by the millions. There is a disease quarantined in Northern California called sudden oak death. It's a fungal disease that's killed millions of western oak trees in uh, California and Oregon. See, I saw all this unfolding in my years as a forester, and it's still happening, man. It's not slowing down. And I see the day coming when our grandchildren will inherit a world that is a mere shadow of the diversity that we inherited. And I don't think we have a right to do that. Do you think being able to bring back the American chestnut could help us save the eastern hemlock and the ash? Yes. Rex says what happened to the American chestnut isn't all that different from what's happening today with COVID. A virus spreads, causes illness and death, and we're helpless to stop it until a vaccine is developed to make us immune to the disease. Rex says one solution to the chestnut blight is similar to the earliest vaccines. In 1777, smallpox was running rampant in Boston. George Washington was preparing to take on the British Army, but he worried that illness would decimate his troops. So he came up with a plan to vaccinate his army. The way they did vaccinations in that day, they would make a small slice in a person's arm, they would take a piece of thread and put it into a, somebody that had an active case of smallpox. 
they would infect that thread, put it into the sore, if you will, and then embed that, implant it in the person's arm and sew it up. Amazingly, it worked. Washington troops came down with a mild case of smallpox, but they survived to take on the British Army. But what does that have to do with the American chestnut tree? There are some problems that are so ugly. Coronavirus, smallpox, chestnut blight, this onslaught we've, we've unleashed on our forests. The only hope is through cutting-edge science. That probably is the only feasible way that we will ever bring back any of these other species that we're losing. Rex says, just like George Washington looked to science to save his troops, the future of the American chestnut and other trees facing similar extinction may lie in new experimental techniques. So I think the bigger story here is embracing the cutting edge science as a nation. Use it wisely. Use it carefully and test it. But I think that is the way we will bring back all these other species that we're losing. And if we don't, we'll have to explain to our grandkids and our descendants, well, we just couldn't save them. We just couldn't do it. But I think we have an obligation to try. High-tech solutions to solve an old problem. More in a minute. Right now, I am at the Advanced Backcross Hybrid Orchard at the Arboretum at Penn State. Sarah Fitzsimmons is the Director of Restoration at the American Chestnut Foundation at Penn State University. And on a windy day, she's walking through the orchard to inspect the American chestnut trees they planted. The 10-acre orchard is divided into two. On one half, there are thousands of young, small trees between the ages of one to five years old. The other half of the orchard is home to the more mature trees. I am standing in the in the oldest part of the orchard, so I'm standing next to the oldest tree right now, which was planted in 2002. It's not only the oldest tree, it's the largest tree in the orchard. It's about 50 foot tall and about 12 inches in diameter at breast height. We know its height because we, we pollinated it this year. We drive a bucket truck in in the summer and we get up into the flowers and and uh, make controlled pollinations with the other best trees in the orchard so that we can get the best of the best out of these trees. Sarah is working on the modern-day version of the smallpox vaccine that Rex Mann mentioned, except she's working with the chestnut tree and blight. We infect all of our trees with the chestnut blight. Between ages one to six or seven, uh, we take the blight, we put it in the tree, we see how well the tree resists. If a tree has no resistance whatsoever, the fungus eats the living tissue underneath the bark, and then the bark sinks down into the wood, and so you get this very bright orange circular canker uh, that appears on the bark. If a tree doesn't develop a resistance to the fungus, Sarah and her team cut it down. We keep the trees that, that swell up, that wall off the fungus. And so you can't really even see that the fungus is there. You don't see the classic orange color or orange sporulation on these swollen cankers. Instead, the tree forms a lump or a burl to contain the blight. Uh, it, it looks a lot like a scab. 
like what happens when we try to stop the bleeding on our skin. The tree is, is trying to stop the fungus from continuing its march across its bark and its living area and, and walls off and scabs over to keep the fungus from, from going across the tree. This hybrid method first crossbreeds American chestnut trees with Chinese chestnut trees, which have a natural resistance to the fungus. So they still get the blight, and so you can see the cankers on these trees, uh, but they grow really tall, they grow very straight, and they're resisting the blight. It's not perfect resistance. It's not immunity for sure, which we can't get through this technique, but they are resisting the blight, and they live, and they produce lots of nuts. This is labor and time-intensive work. Sarah says they'll plant about 25,000 trees and hope to find 50 trees that show a high resistance to the blight. You heard that right, 50 out of 25,000 trees. Then Sarah says they'll breed those trees together, something called recurrent selection, to find the best of the best trees, the ones most suited to survive an infection. Now, the American chestnut tree and its Chinese relative are not the same. Where the American chestnut grows tall and straight, the Asian cousin spreads out its branches, growing wider and closer to the ground. So really, scientists want to handpick the traits to crossbreed. And Sarah says they've learned a lot since they first started planting the orchard back in 2002. The thinking at that time was that blight resistance and chestnut was very simply inherited, that there were a very small number of genes that controlled resistance, maybe as low as two or three. We know now through uh, genomic sequencing and other data that we've gathered in the intervening 20 years that blight resistance is a lot more complicated than we had thought. Complicated enough that some researchers have turned to other methods. My name is uh, Bill Powell. I'm a uh, professor at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. I'm also the director of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project. So I've been working on chestnuts since 1983, actually. (laughs) So a long time. (laughs) Bill Powell has devoted his career to bringing back the American chestnut. His labs in Syracuse, New York, are filled with microscopes, petri dishes, and test tubes of tree DNA. And there are plantlets, tiny chestnut plants that he grows from embryos. Bill's working on genetic modification. Basically, that means implanting some fungal resistance genes from wheat into the American chestnut to create a transgenic tree. And he's hoping to combine what he's doing in his lab with some of the trees that Sarah Fitzsimmons is growing in the orchard, and even with some of the remaining trees in the wild. So one of the things that we're trying to do is to take our like tolerant trees and to outcross them to those surviving trees. And therefore, their offspring would inherit this ability to survive with the blight and they pass on that gene and pass on their genetic backgrounds to their future generations. How do you save a tree? Um, what is the process? And I, there, there's a couple different processes, I, I presume. Yeah, it wasn't easy. And we've been, <laughs> we've been at this for 30 years or more. So to start off with, you have to develop a way to make a tree from a single cell of a tree, which is no easy feat. Because when you put a gene into a tree, you're doing it one cell at a time. And then you want to have every cell in the tree that have that gene. And then the next step was to actually find 
a gene that will provide the resistance you need for the tree to survive. Those first steps took Bill and his colleagues 10 years. This was turning out to be slow, tedious work. Until... We had this uh, kind of eureka moment. Bill came across a gene for an enzyme called oxalate oxidase. And it reminded Bill of his early years of research working on something called hypervigilance. And that's where a virus attacks the fungus, and the fungus can no longer make deadly cankers. And what this virus will do is to actually knock out things like production of this oxalic acid. And so I put two and two together here and said, oh, wait a minute, if the tree can make this enzyme that could knock out this acid, then the tree should be able to defend itself. So we went and started engineering trees so that they would have this particular gene. It took a few tries. At first, the trees died more slowly, but they still died. And then finally, in our third version, we had enough of the enzyme to actually protect the tree from the fungus. And what do you end up with? You end up with a tree that looks and performs and behaves exactly like the American chestnut? Or does it have just a little bit different? Actually, you would not be able to tell the difference between the trees because this particular method, we don't actually change anything in a tree. The tree still has every single one of its original genes, okay? All we're doing is adding a gene that allows it to detoxify this acid. So the tree is actually exactly the same. We're just giving it this extra ability to survive. And so that's actually one of the reasons why I always tell people genetic engineering is a great tool for um, conservation because you can maintain the integrity of the original tree and just add the trait that you want to make it be able to survive and survive this you know, invasive pathogen that has been introduced to this country. So not everyone agrees with you, though. Not everyone thinks that it's a great idea. What do people say when they say this is a bad idea? Well, um, people have different opinions on this. I, actually, most people do support it, but there are some who, who do not. And they have their own reasons, and I can understand their reasons. One is that in the past, genetic engineering was mostly controlled by industry, and some people just don't like big industry. And, and that's not us. We are a environmental college. We're doing this. We're not patenting anything. We're doing this all as a not-for-profit. And then, of course, some people just think it's not natural to do genetic engineering. But, you know, we live in an age of genomics, and we are starting to sequence a lot of plants. And what we're finding out is that actually genetic engineering actually happens out in the wild. And the same bacteria that we used to put the gene into chestnut the bacteria called agrobacterium, is doing that all the time out in the wild. So we're not going to be the first tree in the wild that has been genetic engineered. The only difference here is that we're trying to solve a particular problem caused by humans and adding a gene to do that. No matter the method, Bill says this is bigger than the American chestnut. If we don't save the chestnut, there are unintended consequences of not doing that. You know, there, there's consequences of, well, let's, let's forget this species, let it die out. And then the next species gets attacked and we'll say, let, let it die out. And you go on and on and eventually our forests are basically lost all diversity and, and cannot support the wildlife that it used to support. So you're saying that this is maybe a necessary tool for future problems. Absolutely. Um, as, a, as a necessary defense for our forests. I think, you know, we need all the tools in the toolbox, um, not just genetic engineering. 
we still want to do all the other tools such as breeding. Uh, I don't have anything against hybridization either. We can use that too. So where do we end up? What's the goal? If your work pays off, do we have 15 billion American chestnuts take over the Appalachian and the Eastern forests? Well, that's going to be almost impossible right away. We, we call this a century project because you just can't produce that many, many trees. And the other thing is chestnut is not a weedy species. It's, it's not one of these kinds of trees that you're going to end up in your yard like a, you know, a maple just sprouting up anywhere or something like that. Um, they don't move very fast on their own. It's been shown that they move maybe one to two miles in a hundred years. So I, I foresee in my lifetime, maybe having pockets of chestnut forests in different places where you can go and, and kind of experience what it was like in the past, even though they still won't be as big as they would be uh, later. And it's going to take really a century or, or more to really get a significant amount of the trees out there. But that's okay. We look to the future. We're not doing this for ourselves. We're looking to, to do this for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. This is a start. If you don't start now, it will never happen. There are still lots of hurdles to arriving at the day when you or I might see forests of mature, healthy American chestnut trees. All of these methods take time, a lot of time. And so far as genetic engineering, well, there's still government approval that needs to happen. But Bill, Sarah, and Rex all believe that the health and diversity of our forests rely on protecting trees from extinction and bringing back some old giants. The success of restoring the American chestnut will be the first test. Drop us an email at clearstory@thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced for This Old House by Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch. Production support from James Trout, Andrea Aswahe, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. And special thanks to our guests Susan Frankel, Rex Mann, Sarah Fitzsimmons, and Bill Powell. I'm Kevin O'Connor. More next week. Check out the latest This Old House episodes on your local PBS station and on the Roku channel. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for more from our home improvement experts. Sign up for our email newsletter at thisoldhouse.com.